0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Randy Gottlieb. Randy grew up in a culturally Jewish but atheistic family. She describes her miraculous story on how she ended up becoming a Baha'i. She, along with her husband Steve, is the author of the book, Once to Every Man and Nation. She's now a diversity trainer. I started the interview by asking Randy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I was born in a suburb of Los Angeles, Southern California in a middle-class Jewish neighborhood, and that's where I grew up. I was kind of in an unusual family. i start with my grandparents is where the story begins, and I don't know if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof. Well, that is my family's story, and my grandparents came from Eastern Europe, from Russia, Austria, and Poland. All four grandparents came separately to this country when they were 14, 15 years old through Ellis Island, and they were the ones, their villages were basically, they, they were pogroms against the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And those four were chosen from their families for to survive, basically. They were given mm-hmm. the funds for a boat ticket and ended up alone in a strange country, New York. My grandfather drove a taxi for a while. And I actually never knew my dad's grandfather, he died when I was before I was born. My parents actually came out to California when they were young young adults, met and married, and that's where I was born. So my cultural heritage is East European Jewish and Southern California volleyball. <laughs> 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 and so I, I grew up in a neighborhood of of like people, um, kind of a middle class neighborhood, and. My parents' marriage was not a happy one. Mm-hmm. They were both wonderful people but maybe not meant to be with each other and that had a significant impact on how I grew up. Most of what I did growing up was try to escape. <laughs> mm-hmm. And to get out of the house in any way I could and part of that was that reading which was one one escape. I read constantly. Didn't have many friends because I couldn't invite anyone over to the house. Spent a lot of time writing. I liked to write poetry. Doing artwork, and I became an athlete because that took me away on weekends as well. <laughs> I ended up becoming an athlete and an artist in my in a previous chapter of my life.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your sport?
1: I started off as a swimmer when I was a kid and swam competitively for about six years. And my uh, specialty was the IM individual medley, and then and freestyle. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to high school, I ended up on a volleyball team and just absolutely loved it, quit swimming and became a volleyball player.
0: Well, how did you get into swimming in the first place?
1: That was my mom's idea. (laughs) (laughs) The way she says it, in uh, New York State swim champion. She wanted her daughter to be a swimmer as well.
0: Did you like it before you found volleyball?
1: You know, it was, as I said, it was kind of an unusual childhood and (laughs) so... It wasn't a question of whether I liked it. Mm. It was what I had to do, and I did it very well. And I even have a national swimming record, but I think it was broken probably the next day. But when I was old enough to be able to say no, I quit swimming. And then uh, volleyball was my joy. I love volleyball. I love the, the team sport of it, the the strategy, the different plays, the diving and rolling on the ground, sweating, (laughs) jumping. (laughs) It was very exciting. And swimming was a little bit boring because it's a solitary sport, unless Mm -hmm. you're doing a relay, I guess. But Mm -hmm. you swim on your own, and my mind would just wander back to all the books I had read and (laughs) all the things that I wanted to draw and the poems I wanted to write that would pass the time. But it, it wasn't that exciting.
0: What did you do after high school?
1: As I said, I really enjoyed art and sports, and so I had a PE scholarship to college and started off playing on the college volleyball team, but that wasn't as, as exciting as my club team. I actually ended up on the U.S. women's team for a while and uh, played competitive volleyball and studied art, and my major was wood design. My undergraduate degree is in, I love to tell people, was is in shop.
2: <laughs>
1: so that's what I did through Three years, and then um, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, asked me to marry him, and because of my parents' experience, I had long since decided that marriage was not for me, and so he, he kept pressuring me, said I'm the right one, and eventually I would realize that, <laughs> <laughs> and so in my third year of college, I dropped out of school and took off for Europe to get away from his, his request. I was traveling around and had my rail pass and my youth hostel pass and was gone for several months. And really, that trip, I think, really opened my eyes to the fact that the world was a lot different than this little town in Southern California where I had grown up. I met people of different colors, different religious backgrounds, different political persuasions. It was actually quite an eye-opener, and when I got to uh, the youth hostel in Amsterdam, I received a postcard from my boyfriend, and it said, I've become a Baha'i. So that's actually where I first heard the word, and I asked the people in the youth hostel where I was staying, what is that? What is Baha'i? And they said, whoa, those are those people who go around chanting and selling incense in the streets. (laughs) So I said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> what has what my, my boyfriend done? <laughs> what? And it, yeah, and, oh, and they shaved their heads, too. So that was the end of that. I wrote back and told them I was no longer interested, and I kept traveling around.
0: Do you know the circumstances in which he ran into the Baha'is and became a Baha'i?
1: I do. He was a student at UCLA, and he was walking down Bruin Walk, which is the kind of the main uh, campus walkway there, and there was a Baha'i information table. And he saw a list of Baha'i principles, the equality of women and men, the harmony of science and religion, the unity of the human race, and so forth. And he had been studying all kinds of issues, ecology, um, population growth, the environment, social issues, social problems, civil rights. Um, I think we we're, we're at the height of the Vietnam War at the time. And uh, he saw that list and said, wow, this is the answer. This this is the solution to all the problems I've been studying. So he went over to the booth, read some of the pamphlets, the literature that they had, uh, went to uh, a Baha'i fireside and informational meeting that night, and the speaker was um, a very well-known Baha'i, Farooz Kazemzadeh. And my husband, Steve, heard the talk and decided that was what he believed, and he became a Baha'i right there. I was traveling around, and two marriage proposals later, I decided that I really did love Steve, and I had to come back and see what was happening and and kind of talk him out of this crazy new religion that he had found. So I came home, and he still had all his hair. He was acting very normally, and he wasn't selling things in the street. So I sat down with him and said, I'm really interested in you, but I'm not interested in religion. I don't believe in God, even though I had been raised in a kind of a secular Jewish home. We never really talked about God. I never went to Hebrew school. Never really learned anything about it. So there was nothing for me to believe in. And I thought religious faith was just a crutch, the opiate of the masses type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to talk him out of it. He was very good about it. He didn't pressure me. He just left little Baha'i pamphlets around. (laughs) which I, of course, saw but decided not to pick up, and and I ignored them completely. And finally, um, I realized that he wasn't going to leave the Baha'i faith, so I gave him an ultimatum, and I realized that I did love him. So I said, look, you're going to have to make a a choice here. It's either me or God.
0: So (laughs) So let me ask you a question, Randy. Yes. Why did you feel you had to make an ultimatum? Why couldn't you share him... With God?
1: Because before I left for Europe, we had been living together, mm-hmm. and Baha'is don't do that. <laughs> ah,
0: yes. All right. And so he,
1: when I came back, he said, I can't continue that relationship at that level. Baha'is are chaste before marriage and faithful after marriage. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't sit well with me, so he had to obviously give up one or the other.
0: So you gave him this ultimatum?
1: I gave him the ultimatum, and he looked right in my eyes and he said, I love you, but I am a Baha'i. That made me very angry, and I was determined then to prove to him that the Baha'i faith was false. And so I spent the next nine months reading some of the Baha'i writings so I could show him all the mistakes and the contradictions. And then in order to be fair, of course, I had to read my own scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, and then, of course, the New Testament as well, and then the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita, And then I took a class in comparative religions at my university, went to born-again Christian retreats with some friends. I don't know if you remember Sun Young Moon, vegetarians, (laughs) Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, anything that I could find. I I read, I went to, uh, spoke with people, looked up in the library. After nine months of this, I became very frustrated because I began to see that there was a connection. I read Bill Sears' Thief in the Night, which looks at prophecies and their fulfillment. I went to the library and looked up old microfiche, that's before we had the Internet, and everything was fitting. Everything fell into place. All the dates checked. I read old ambassador's reports and got things translated by friends, and everything fit together. And so I came to the point where, intellectually, I thought the Baha'i faith must be true. But because of the way I was raised, I, I don't have a spiritual bone in my body, and my heart could just... I could not take that step of faith. And during this whole time, I mentioned that my grandparents came to this country because of religious persecution. And my parents also experienced that. My father dropped out of school at eighth grade because he was beaten up often on the way to school for being Jewish and called names. And my mother, for example, applied for a teaching job. She graduated as a teacher in New York, uh, applied for a teaching job in California, got the job, came out, sold everything, traveled across the country, arrived just before the first day of work to fill out all the paperwork and sign the forms, and she left religion blank on the form, and they said, oh, you're Jewish. You can't have this job. Because of that experience, my parents and many others, my parents were very upset that I was studying something that wasn't the Jewish faith, they were upset that I was learning about Christ and Christianity. And my father in particular, I can't repeat on the air some of the names that he used for for Baha'i teachings and some of the Baha'i figures, Mm -hmm. but he was really furious. And so during this nine-month search of mine, where I was reading everything, if he ever saw me reading a Baha'i book or the Bible or any other religious book, He would take it away and rip it up and throw it out. So I lost a few books.
0: Even the Hebrew Bible?
1: No, no, not not that. But uh, the Baha'i books in particular Mm -hmm. and the Christian Bible. Mm. He had been called a lot of names by Christians and did not have a warm place in his heart Mm -hmm. (laughs) for that tradition. So he was worried about what his daughter was getting into and, and pretty upset. So I would have to read at night after my parents had gone to bed. I would read with a flashlight under the covers, if they saw light you know, coming through the crack in the door, I'd lose another book. So <laughs> so that's how I studied. My mother was also pretty upset, but not quite as vocal about it as my father. One night, I was reading, and my head and my heart were in total conflict. One was saying, yes, it's true, and the other was saying, absolutely not. And I couldn't sleep. So I picked up a copy of a, just a book of Baha'i verses, the hidden words, beautiful verses, and I read, O Son of Man, wert thou to speed throughout the immensity of space and traverse the expanse of heaven, yet thou wouldst find no rest save in submission to our command and humbleness before our faith. And I read those words, and for the first time in my life, I was 20 years old, I felt something. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was a voice speaking directly to my heart. And yet, I knew that I could never become a Baha'i. I just could not take that step of faith. And so I decided to do something I had never done before, and that was to say a prayer. Because why pray if there's nothing there, right? right. So I said, oh God, I don't know if you exist or not, but if you do, the least you can do is let my mother know. And that was my prayer. Wow. Kind of a
0: very rudimentary Prayer. Actually, it's pretty <laughs> significant, I think. Well,
1: that's that's what my prayer was. Mm. And remember, it was 3 in the morning. Mm. A few seconds later, my mother ran into my room, and she said, Randy, wake up. And I said, Mom, I am up. What are you doing up? <laughs> it's 3 in the morning. She said, I was fast asleep in my room when the whole room filled up with light. And I had just been praying that she would see the light. Right said, I don't know what you've been studying all these months. I don't know anything about the Baha'i faith. She pointed to her head. She said, I don't know the laws. I don't know the teachings. I don't know anything about the the central figures or the history. And then she pointed to her heart, and she said, but I know that it's true. I said, what? (laughs) She said, I heard a voice. It said, don't worry about your daughter. The Baha'i faith is true. So, to me, this was a miracle, but I didn't believe in miracles. And so I was completely freaked out, and my mother went back to bed. I couldn't sleep for the rest of the night. In the morning, she got up, looked through the phone book, found Baha'i, called the number, went over to the fireside that night, introductory meeting, and became a Baha'i right Uh there. Uh So my mother is actually the first Baha'i in our family, and... I followed her over in my car and came into the, to the living room just as she was signing her name on an enrollment card. My mother's still a Baha'i. She still doesn't really know much about it, and if anyone asks her, she gives them my phone number and says, ask my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> but she knows that it's true. Well, she had the heart and, and not the head, and I was the other way around. So I walked into the fireside. So... She left, and I walked into the room, and there there was a crowd there, maybe 15 or 20 people, and the speaker at the front, I walked to the back near the door so I could escape quickly in case anything strange happened, and I didn't really know what to expect. And the speaker said, he was going through some of the Baha'i principles, he said, so the Baha'is believe in the equality of men and women. And there was a man sitting just to my right, and he stood up and he said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Everyone knows that men and women will never be equal, and you might as well forget about that.
0: Well, no, the speaker, no, no, what year is this? This was
1: 1971. The speaker addressed some of his concerns and then went on to the next principle and said, Baha'is believe in the harmony of science and religion. And the man was shaking his fist, and he said, you will never get the clergy and the scientists to agree on, every, on anything. This No, no way. And the speaker addressed his concerns and went on. And the whole night was like that, just back and forth, and this one gentleman objected to everything. Mm. So I didn't say a word. I'm sitting there listening to this this exchange and thinking, all right, God, now I think you do exist from what happened last night. I mean, you answered a prayer that was in my heart, and I didn't even say it out loud. Mm. So you must be pretty powerful and pretty all-knowing. So I have a test for you. And and I know it's supposed to go the other way around, but I said, God, if that man becomes a Baha'i tonight, then you can have me. (laughs) So I felt pretty safe at that point. And so the speaker had another principle, and the man jumped up, shaking his fist, and he said, I've had it with you Baha'is. Everything I say, you've you've got an answer for. I can't fight you any longer. I'm going to join you. (laughs) And so... Uh, that's the night I became a Baha'i, and I really had no choice.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Yes, but it's true, <laughs> and I'm still here. And that, and then I put my name on the card, and at that moment of signing my name and saying, I submit, <laughs> at that moment, all of my doubts vanished. Everything became clear, and my heart was at peace. Wow.
0: So that's
1: story. how I became a Baha'i.
0: What a story.
1: Well... It's a, an incredible creator <laughs> <laughs> and I have a very hard head so <laughs> I had to hit, hit hard
0: <laughs> So what were the ramifications of you becoming a Baha'i?
1: My father came over to the fireside in his car right after that.
0: This is all in the same evening your all mother the and then evening. you and then your father
1: yes all in the same evening. My father came over and saw me signing my name my, my mom had already left and I don't think he ever knew that she had become a Baha'i because of their relationship. I don't think she, she said anything to him. But he saw me, and he just, he he was pretty angry. And so he grabbed me, took me outside, put me in his car, and we had a car at the time, an old Studebaker, where the top went down. So he put the top down and drove me up to Moholland Drive, which is, kind of the lover's lane, or the San Fernando Valley there where I grew up, and drove me back and forth, and he said, breathe deeply, breathe, breathe, and get it out of your system, whatever drugs they put in you. (laughs) Of course, it didn't work. I'm still a Baha'i. It was very upsetting to him. And then for the next eight years, shortly after that, um, I graduated from college in Los Angeles. And after I became a Baha'i, shortly after that, I married my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and we went back east to grad school. So for the next eight years, we would come home during Christmas and stay with my family and and visit for a week or so. And every year, I was a a very new Baha'i, and I apparently hadn't read the passages about not arguing. (laughs) So so I would come home and try to argue with my father about why the Baha'i faith was true and why it was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith and why I wasn't giving up my faith, but I was completing it, and he didn't want to hear any of it. But I kept hammering away in a very un-Baha'i type of way, which I regret, but that's what happened. And so every year I just hardened his heart more and more. Mm. And then finally, one year, I got a phone call that said, you have to come home immediately, um, Dad's in the hospital. He had kidney cancer, and nobody knew. He just hadn't felt right for a while, but he didn't like doctors, so he never went until it, it became obvious that something was terribly wrong. And so I flew home, and my family was in the hospital. The doctor said he can stay here in the hospital, hooked up to all the tubes and IV lines and so forth, and he might live for a month, maybe two. Or you can take him home, and he'll have maybe a day. Mm -hmm. We asked my father what he wanted to do, and he said, I'm dying either way. He said, I'd like to will one of my kidneys, the one with cancer, (laughs) to Adolf Hitler. (laughs) He said, I'm going to die either way. I want to die in my home with my family, not in in a sterile hospital with nurses and doctors around me. So we took him home. My two brothers and my sister and I took turns doing a vigil, And he was kind of fading in and out. Sometimes he'd be there and you could talk to him and sometimes his eyes would be open, but he was really somewhere else. It turned out that I had the last turn and I had my guitar with me, which he had given me years before under the condition that I never play any Baha'i songs on it. So (laughs) I told you we have a little uh, strange family. (laughs) He was lying there and we were talking half in and half out half-conscious, and I decided to play him a song on my guitar, and there's a beautiful song, a passage from the Bob, that says, We all come from God, and unto him do we return.
0: Now, could you sing it for me?
1: You know, I could, but I have a terrible voice, and it would scare away all your future listeners, but (laughs) I'll I'll give it a try. It said, We all come from God. And unto him do we return, like a
2: river flowing back, to the ocean, or a ray of light, returning
1: to the sun. Something like that, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a singer, so. I was singing that to him, and I figured it wasn't technically a Baha'i song, because it was the words of the Bob. The forerunner to (laughs) Baha'u'llah.
0: It was a Babi song.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So as I was singing, he opened his eyes. And this is the last thing he said in this world. He said, the Baha'i faith, now I'm ready to hear about it. Mm. And then he dies. Oh, my God. So, (laughs) So that's my dad's story. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's amazing. Your turn now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you gather yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I like to think he's in the next world,
0: helping. Yeah. Yeah. When you were coming home and doing this battle with your father, Mm. where was your mother in all that?
1: Yeah, she was also there and also not happy with my arguing with him. Right. (laughs) But she she didn't say much.
0: Did he know that she was a Baha'i?
1: I don't think he ever did, and I didn't feel it was my place to sure. tell him. He did tell me that if I ever wanted to come home, I would not tell my brothers and sisters about it. And I honored that request as long as he was alive and I was in his home.
0: Now, did they really not know that you were a Baha'i, even though you didn't tell them?
1: I don't think they did. Uh, he forbade me from telling them, and I I didn't tell them. And And also I didn't live at home. There wasn't much opportunity really to speak in in that way. Our family was not very close at the time. We've become closer now.
0: You implied you went to graduate school, you and your husband.
1: I told you I was an art major at a wood shop. And I built furniture and various wood design things. And my goal in life at the time was to become an artist hermit because I didn't like people, (laughs) didn't want to get married, didn't want to have kids. And I wanted to build my house out of wood, live up in the mountains, and then come down into the town once in a while, sell what I had made, get some money, buy groceries, and go back up to the mountains. That was my dream. After becoming a Baha'i and reading the incredibly powerful passages about the importance of education and the importance of teachers, I did a complete about face and decided to get my teaching certificate. I became a teacher, an art teacher, of course, with an English minor because I, I love to read so much and write, and then I uh, taught for a couple of years and helped to put my husband through the first few years of med school. He wanted to become a doctor because that was a way of serving humanity, and as a Baha'i, that's what, that became his goal, uh, both of us, in fact. After teaching for a few years in, in Massachusetts, and I think that's where your radio program originates. That's
0: correct. We're, yeah. in West, we're in western Massachusetts. Western
1: Massachusetts. We were in Cambridge for a while, mm. Cambridge, Boston area. After teaching, I decided that I wanted to have more power than an individual teacher, maybe help with some curriculum design and some administration of schools, and so I went back to get my master's in education and then decided to go on for a doctorate. So that was in the Boston area. The day after I graduated, I flew to Puerto Rico, and my husband was already there, and that became our overseas pioneering post. As you know, Baha'is do not have any professional clergy, no paid clergy, but we are encouraged to be of service in our own communities and also overseas, share the Baha'i teachings, and contribute to the community. Both of us were ready. We had been married for 10 years. We were ready to have a family, and we thought it would be wonderful if we could do some overseas service and at the same time start our family where our children would grow up to be bilingual and bicultural. And that seemed like an easy way to accomplish all of that. We asked where we might be needed most, During our eight years of grad school, we had done a lot of Baha'i service trips overseas, mostly to Latin America. As struggling students, that was the least expensive place to go. We had been to Nicaragua and Honduras and Ecuador and so forth. So we had a little bit of Spanish under our belt already. Puerto Rico seemed like a good place, and so we were there for 11 years. And that's where our two boys were born.
0: And you were teaching there?
1: I actually um, ended up doing a couple things. I taught at the university part-time
0: for a
1: short while, and then I ended up being the administrator of the Amos Gibson Training Center for Baha'i Media, and that was an international training center. It was sponsored by the Universal House of Justice, which is the international Baha'i governing body. They had asked us to do radio training for... Baha'is who were establishing radio stations in various parts of the world. So that's what I did for a number of years. And what did you do? Everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Picked up the students at the airport, brought them back to the training center, developed the curriculum, taught the classes, helped with the construction of the facilities, whatever needed doing, translating.
0: What kind of classes did you teach?
1: Radio broadcasting for the most part. And I worked with a man who some people would know Dean Stevens, together we, we taught all of the classes. He was more on the technical end and I was more on the script writing and programming end. I did that for seven or eight years and then after that our children were in school. It became harder and harder for, for people from other countries to get visas, so it became easier for us to send trainers out to that country rather than import all of the students to our training center. So we developed a different kind of a delivery program. I decided to start homeschooling my kids. At that time, I was working part-time at the university and teaching classes. But my children's educational experience was suffering. They would come home from school and say, I'm never going back. Mm -hmm. And they'd have headaches and stomach aches every morning. And so I went to observe in their classroom and at that time, in, in our very small town, the schools were not as good as I had hoped that they would be, and so we decided that I would homeschool for a while. I started, and the neighbor found out about it and said, can my kid come too? So we had a couple of kids, and then the Board of Education found out about this. I got a call that said, it's illegal to homeschool. Don't you like our school system? What's wrong, What's wrong with it? They said, if you want to homeschool, you actually have to get a license from us, and you have to get all the inspections, the health inspections. You have to hire certified teachers. You have to go through all the hoops. And I said, okay. So we established a school. It was a Baha'i-inspired elementary school. It was called Escuela de las Naciones, the School of the Nations.
0: That's interesting because there was a School of the Nations in Brazil.
1: Yes, Escuela das Nações, and we... Tried to find out everything we could about their school, and there were actually several Baha'i schools around the world. So we wrote for different ideas. Also, as an educator, and having my husband and I both have, did some traveling earlier, and everywhere we went, we looked at schools. We talked to students and teachers, and we did some research on best practices. Everything we could find that students and teachers liked, and parents, um, everything that seemed to work according to the research and according to practice, we put into our school. And it was a wonderful school. It was a big experiment, and I would say a successful experiment, but it only lasted for one year.
0: How how many students did you have?
1: Well, we started off with about 10 students and grew to 15 the, the first semester. Then halfway through the year, we took on 15 more. And you can imagine who would want to be in a school started by foreigners who have never started a school before in a small town. Only the kids who had dropped out, failed out, or been kicked out of other schools. So we had a a pretty difficult crowd of 15 students. And then they ended up doing so well in such a short time that their parents pulled their siblings out of the regular schools and the private school down the street and put them in ours. So we ended up with 30 at the end of the first year and 30 more on a waiting list. We, We didn't feel we could take in that many more without... Expanding our space and hiring more teachers, and that's kind of hard to do in the middle of the school year. All of those students came out of the school down the street, which happened to be a Catholic school, including all the students on our waiting list for the following year. And when we did an open house in March to advertise for the following September, we did a big blitz. We had things on the radio, on the television, local television station. We had banners strung across the street at the intersection. We paid kids to stand on street corners and hand out flyers. All of our existing parents called all of their friends. The whole town knew about our open house, and lots of calls, lots of interest calls were received. On the day of the open house, not one person showed up, and we thought this was really strange, so we asked our parents if they knew what was going on, and they said, yes, but we didn't want to tell you. The priest who was the head of the Catholic school down the street, and I don't want to say anything bad about priests or the Catholic faith. This was just this one individual. He had a weekly radio program, and he had gotten on the radio that Wednesday night and had said, anyone who sends their child to the school of those devils, and of course everyone knew who the devils were, (laughs) Mm. those children and their parents will go to hell. There was just no no question about it, and it's a very Catholic town. So that was it. We had no no people who were willing to take that risk, except our existing parents, bless their hearts. They tried to counteract that unsuccessfully. And so we saw the writing on the wall and realized with no new students coming in, there's no way to pay the teachers or pay the rent, and we ended up having to close the school. So we had uh, it was a one-year, very successful experiment.
0: So you did have the students that were there before, but you still couldn't continue the school?
1: Well, we could have continued maybe for a year or two, but eventually those people in first grade go through the school and graduate, and if no new students are coming in, how do you replace them? And the existing parents called us to a meeting and said, we'll loan you the money. We said, that is so sweet of you, but how are we going to pay you back? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they said, we'll give you the money. But there was just no way financially that it, it was viable with no new students coming in. And and the priest was stepping up his campaign. So that was it. It was a sad day for us when we realized that the school was closing. Actually, my husband and I sat on the rug. I, w- I was very emotional, but I was feeling like I wanted to cry because... We loved the students, Um, they loved the school, they would tell their parents on weekends, they would cry and say, why can't we go to school on Saturday and Sunday? It was such a warm and loving place. It really exemplified, at least in my mind, the Baha'i principles of education. We had a real community, so it was a sad day when we realized that the school was closing, and we, we took care of all the students, made sure they had other places to go and transferred all their records, and then we decided to pray. We said, well, God, if you don't want us to have this school, that means we don't have a place for our own children to go, so we might need to move. Would you like us to move to the capital? That's where all the other Baha'is are, and we're not really needed there quite as much. But if you want us to do that, we will. And then we kept praying, and we thought, well, why should we limit it to the capital? We'll go anywhere on the island that you want us to go, anywhere in Puerto Rico. We prayed some more, and we thought, well, why put those limits? We'll go anywhere in the Caribbean. No, we'll go anywhere in the Spanish-speaking world, and then we thought, you know, why put limits on it at all? We'll just God, just make it really clear to us, and just black and white. Tell us where you want us to go, and we'll go there. As we were praying, and I added a little P.S. I said, I wouldn't mind if it doesn't have mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> that very night, we got a phone call from another Baha'i who had come down a few years earlier to help train the teachers for our school, she was doing a, a job in the States, and she called and said, Randy, I've submitted your name in this town called Yakima for a job there, and they're expecting you to call them tomorrow and send in your resume. And I said, Judy, why are you calling me? I'm not looking for a job, and I'm not planning to go back to the States, and no, no, no. And as I was saying no, I realized we had just been praying for guidance, and maybe this was it. So I said, where is Yakima? Is that in Africa somewhere? And she said, no, it's in Washington State. It's in the Pacific Northwest. So I said, okay, I'll give them a call tomorrow. And my husband said, well, as long as you're looking for something in the Pacific Northwest, let me see if there's something there for me. Uh, the public health service had paid for two years of his, the last two years of his med school. So he was on their mailing list. And every six months or so he would get an update of all the public health service jobs in the country and all of the U.S. territories. So he said, I, I think a few months ago I got one of those updates. Let me look around on my pile of papers here on my desk and see if there's anything there for me. So he looked, and he's a pediatrician. He looked through the entire book, thousands of jobs, and there was only one job in the entire book for a pediatrician. And you can guess where <laughs> where the job was.
0: You can narrow it down for me, but the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) It was in Yakima. (laughs) That's crazy.
1: (laughs) And so then we called up the Baha'is in Yakima, and we said, we're a Spanish-speaking Baha'i family from Puerto Rico, and is there any need for us in Yakima? And the Baha'is said, you know, we were just having our annual meeting when the phone rang, and we were praying for a Spanish-speaking Baha'i family to move to Yakima. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. And we decided that that was enough guidance, and here we are in Yakima. We've been here for 16 years. And there's a large Spanish-speaking community here as well. And we live on the Yakima Indian
0: Reservation. So tell me about Yakima.
1: Yakima is a, it's a small town growing. It's very agricultural. We, our main crop is apples, and we export to the entire world. We're just coming up on apple season right now. We also grow hops and mint and peaches and pears and all kinds of good fruit about half of our county is hispanic mostly from mexico from the province of Michoacan. it's a very beautiful community very rural lots of trees and it's a high desert but it's green because of all the irrigation Mm. and lots of sunshine 280 days of sunshine a year
0: doesn't sound like washington to me
1: it doesn't sound like seattle which rains all the time (laughs)
0: What was it like returning to the States after being away?
1: It was actually a bit of a shock for me. Uh, My husband had it easier. He went straight to work, and and his patients, he works at the Yakima Farm Workers Clinic, so the patients here are very similar to the patients he had in Puerto Rico, and he's a, a wonderful doctor, and his patients love him. For me, it was a little bit harder, I think, and for my children, My boys were nine and seven when we moved here. They were born and and raised in Puerto Rico. They had two first languages, Spanish and English, English from the home and then Spanish at school and with all their friends. Puerto Rico was their country. That was their food, their clothing, their language, their flag, their national anthem, their holidays, and their culture. And this was a foreign country to them. I decided to take the first year and stay home with my children before I started looking for work just to help make that adjustment for our family and get us settled. It was difficult. The culture here is a lot more materialistic with a lot less emphasis on on family. It's very individualistic and not quite as warm and hospitable as the Latino culture. And that was a shock for my boys. They didn't know anything else but. And then for me, I remember sitting in the supermarket the first time I went shopping here, and I was on the bread aisle, and in Puerto Rico, there were two kinds of bread. This was before we had all the supermarkets and fast food there. There was pan de ajo and pan de agua, bread with water and bread with a little garlic or something. I was sitting in the bread aisle in the supermarket, and there were at least 100 kinds of bread. You know, There was wheat bread and rye bread and whole grain and nine grain and you know, pumpernickel and you know, white with sesame, and white with this and on and on. And I was paralyzed for a moment just with all of the choices and thinking how simple life was one moment and how complicated (laughs) it was the next and just feeling overwhelmed. It took me a while. Unfortunately, I feel comfortable now. (laughs) (laughs) But it it took about two years before I made that adjustment. And my kids, it was actually a bit harder for them to...
0: They went back to English-speaking schools?
1: That was the only choice. I had actually looked for schools that taught Spanish or at least had a bilingual program. At that time, there were none. Because they came from us, my husband and I, from East European stock, they're white, fair-skinned, brown-haired. They look like us on the outside. And on the inside, they were Puerto Rican. There's a lot of prejudice in our small town, Because of the large immigrant population from Puerto Rico, which came up throughout the years to pick crops and then eventually stayed and are now residents here, there's a lot of prejudice between the white community and the Hispanic or Latino community. And so my kids got caught in the middle of that. They would try to fit in with the white group. When they heard the white kids talking, it was all about all those Mexicans, and it wasn't very kind. And yet they were in the group that was them, on the inside. Then they'd try to fit with the with the Mexican or the Hispanic group, but they didn't look like them, so they couldn't fit. And so they really had no center and no, no place to belong. So they had a pretty difficult time growing up in, in this area. Mm-hmm. Now they've come back to who they are, and when they introduce themselves, my youngest, for example, says, Hi, I'm, I'm Jonathan, and I'm from Puerto Rico. Where are you from? Mm-hmm. But it took one day for them to come home from school, the first day of school here, and they both... Said, Mom, if you tell anyone where we're born, we'll we'll disown you. But actually, it was a little stronger than that. And if you speak Spanish in front of us, or if anyone speaks Spanish in front of us, we're going to pretend that we don't understand. So it was it was pretty difficult for them for a long time. But I think what kept them going and what kept me going was the recognition that we are one human race, and that there is no us or them. It's all us. And knowing that in our hearts and hoping and praying and trying to be an example of that for other people, realizing that as time goes on, other people will recognize that as well and recognize that the human race is one family. There's a small African-American community. There's a small Filipino community here. There's a small Native American community. And there's a larger white and a larger Latino community, but those different groups don't mix. They're fairly separate. In fact, that's what I do. When I moved to Yakima, I said, What can I do about this? I wanted to work part time in my profession and then part time and then be a full time mom. And so I was looking for something that I could do and still pick my kids up from school and take them to their softball games and so forth. I prayed for a job that would allow me to address the most challenging issues we have in this country and particularly, it seems, in Yakima and that is race unity. And so I became a diversity trainer, and that's what I do now. Hmm. I like to think that I'm, at least on a professional level and also on on a Baha'i level, trying to work on that issue, address it as best as I can.
0: What venues do you do your diversity training?
1: Well, I go anywhere in the world, anyone who wants to hire me. (laughs) I've been all over, less in Yakima than in other parts of the, the state and other parts of the country, and I also work here at the local university on the Yakima Nation Reservation, and I, that's what I do. I'm a teacher educator as well. I teach diversity issues, multicultural education for teachers.
0: Do you actually promote yourself as a diversity educator throughout the country? Do you like I have a website or something?
1: I do. It's unityworks.net with the Ws in front of it. But I don't promote myself because I'm already very busy, and it just seems to go by word of mouth. But I am happy to go anywhere.
0: Do you have any goals or aspirations ahead of you that you would like to do that maybe you haven't done yet?
1: Yes, I do. (laughs) I'd love to retire in style. (laughs) (laughs) But before that, actually, I'm joking, I don't think I'll ever retire. I think I've started on a project that has been my my life dream since I became a Baha'i, and that is to put down some of the Baha'i children's classes, some of the activities, the songs, the stories, the games, the hands-on things, the crafts, the music that we've done, my husband and I both have done over the years with our own children and then in Baha'i children's classes everywhere we've gone, which we also used in our school. And the children responded so positively To those activities, so we continued some of them here in, in Yakima with the same positive response. The parents of those kids have asked us to write those up in a form that others could use, and so I have started doing that and put out some activity books for children's classes. I have one called God in the Universe. Another one was just published this past weekend called The Manifestations of God. The next one will be on the Bob. I have one on Baha'u'llah, one on the power of unity, which is my professional field. And God willing, I will be able to do some work on that in my tired hours, spare time, when I, when I find it.
0: Where could one find these materials?
1: I actually have another website for those, and, and my oldest son is a wonderful web designer, so he's produced both of those sites. It's the unity Works online store. It's http colon slash slash. And then the address is store.unityworks.net. And, and you can even do it without the HTTP. Just type store.unityworks.net, and that will take you right there. And I'm very excited about that. <laughs> oh, yes. And I have a book, a wonderful collection of Baha'i stories. My husband and I would attend conferences over the years or firesides, other Baha'i activities, and we'd always ask, or someone would ask, so how did you become a Baha'i? And we would listen to the most incredible stories. And one day we just looked at each other and we said, you know, someone's got to write these down so other people can hear them as well. And we said, well, we can do that. And so we started collecting them, recording them, asking people to write in with their stories. And it's just a wonderful collection. The book is called Once to Every Man and Nation. And if people are interested, they can look on the store.unityworks.net website and that will take you to the publisher.
0: Well, Randy, thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: Thank you very much, Warren. I
0: appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Randy Gottlieb, an author and diversity trainer. Her website is unityworks.net. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, You can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
3: Friday morning has come again And oh what a gift I've been given All my time is my own today And what else could I have chosen But to give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time the feel of a hometown where I landed They're slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own I'm gonna give them to you I hold the earth in the palm of my hand So say the wise and the sages I've got nothing, but I'm working God's land. I've got the wealth of the ages, I'll wear the clothing of the common man, doing the work of the angels. Time flies like fine grains of sand. My life is a turn of the pages, and I'll give it to you can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time and the feel of a hometown where I landed The slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So while I can call these things my own I'm gonna give them to you To the hollow that is dark For those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you It's like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life? In the hometown Where I landed the Slipping away I'll be empty handed So while I can call These things my own am gonna give them to you And if I can call These things my own gotta to give them to you Can I really call These things my own
2: Not famous, think that no one will blame us Letting injustice go on as it does But the starving don't care about the price of your haircut Any true kindness will do Because Bono can't change the world anymore Voices and hands do more than any commands could, reviving the spirits of all.
0: so JLP Northampton 103.3 FM your Valley Free Radio station streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org